This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just to note before we start, this podcast makes reference to sexual violence. Today on the Indo Daily, Killer Graham Dwyer is seeking a retrial. The 50 year old Foxhawk architect's appeal against his 2015 conviction for the gruesome murder of childcare worker Elaine O'Hara has finally got underway. Dwyer had been involved in a, in a secret, sadomasochistic relationship with her at the time she, she died. The tack being taken by his legal team relates to this issue of mobile phone metadata. Dwyer successfully challenged the law under which that metadata was seized by the guards. And this was a key part of the Garda case when it came to identifying uh, Graham Dwyer's suspect. A judge threatened to remove Dwyer from the courtroom after the killer repeatedly interrupted the prosecution. Dwyer objected at that point saying, I didn't say any of that. Then there was two further interruptions in quick succession and this led to a warning from the president of the court if Graham Dwyer continued to interrupt, he would be taken down to the cells. I'm Fiona Sheehan and today on the Indo Daily, I'm joined by legal affairs editor Shane Phelan to take us through the appeal case. Shane, Graham Dwyer, he's back in court. Why? So this is Graham Dwyer's long-awaited appeal against his 2015 conviction for the murder of childcare worker Elaine O'Hara. Dwyer had been involved in a, in a secret, sadomasochistic relationship with her at the time she, she died. His, his appeal was paused because he, he, he went off on a different route. In the civil courts for a while, he was basically seeking to, uh, to uh, challenge the law under which his mobile phone Metadata was retained and seized by Gardaí. And this was a key part of the Garda case when it came to identifying uh, Graham Dwyer's suspect. They were able to cross-reference his, uh, use his, his, his metadata to cross-reference his movements against those of Elaine O'Hara and, and various other bits of evidence that they got. So his appeal, it started on, uh, on Thursday and it ran then into, uh, into Friday as well. We did have fairly dramatic scenes, though, in court on Friday. That's right. Um, I mean, the first day of the appeal, Graham Dwyer would have, would have sat there uh, just basically observing and, and was pretty placid. placid. I, I described him as being attentive. Uh, you know, you could see he was taking in everything. But then on Friday, he began to take exception to some of the things that were being said by uh, counsel for the DPP. It was... Friday was the DPP's day to have their say on, on the various points of appeal. 
And what <clears throat> what set him off really was a contention by Sean Gearan, the senior counsel for the DPP, that a text retrieved from a burner phone and attributed to Dwyer had said that he wanted to stick his knife into flesh while he was sexually aroused and that blood, blood turned him on and he'd like to stab a girl to death. And Mr. Gearan said that the prosecution's case was that Dwyer meant what he said and did what he said he was going to do in this particular text message. And Dwyer, he didn't stand, stand up or anything, he remained sitting down, but he interjected at that point saying, I didn't say any of that. And then there was two further interruptions in quick succession things that Mr. Gearan said that Graham Dwyer didn't agree with. And this led to a warning from the president of the court, Mr. Justice Birmingham, that basically if Graham Dwyer continued to interrupt, he would be taken down to the cells. After that, there wasn't another word out of him. He, he kept quiet and he restrained himself to just writing post-it notes and passing them to his lawyer. What's his demeanour and appearance like? Well, he's he, he's was, was smartly dressed. He's wearing a, a navy suit, white shirt, a navy tie. He looks a, a little bit thinner than maybe the last time we've seen him in court. He's cut his hair; it's quite tight. He looks like someone who was maybe keeping fit in prison. Can you recap the rather gruesome murder of Elaine O'Hara? So Elaine O'Hara, she went missing in in August of 2012, and it was something of a mystery, you know, what happened to her. And the, the answer to that mystery kind of came only 13 months later when remains were found in a forest at Killakee in the Dublin mountains. And uh, these turned out to be her. And Gardy immediately knew, look, look, we have a, a murder hunt here on our hands. Within days of her body being found, they made a key discovery. Uh, a guard had found uh, some uh, discarded mobile phones and keys and, and, and other evidence in a reservoir down in uh, at Fartree, just outside Roundwood, County, uh, County Wicklow. And uh, these phones and evidence they were able to retrieve from these phones, uh, remarkably really, text messages and so on, to kind of set them on the path to uh, a successful investigation in the case. What do we know about the grounds that Graham Dwyer is using here for to take his appeal? So initially, he would have filed 12 grounds of appeal. Now, uh, some of these uh, weren't put put forward to the court, so, so things were, were narrowed somewhat. The main ground relates to this issue of mobile phone metadata. Dwyer successfully challenged the law under which that metadata was seized by the guards, and the Court of Appeal was basically told that, look, these rulings, they had to be respected. In particular, it was a ruling from the, the Court of Justice from the EU was referenced. But the tack being taken by his legal team has differed from what it was in the trial. At the trial, they were arguing for the complete exclusion of that evidence. Now they're basically saying that there should have been a test applied to weigh up whether that evidence should have been included. And because they didn't get that test at the trial, that Graham Dwyer is now entitled to have a retrial. So that's kind of where they're going with that particular issue. But there's a host of other grounds as well. There's some of the stuff sounded stronger than others. One of us was the other particularly strong from Dwyer's point of view grounds was that that there was an absence of evidence of causation. Now, this is basically his contention that the prosecution was unable to prove or determine the cause of death. Now, you have to bear in mind, Finan, um, this poor woman, uh, her remains, they were up in a mountain forest for 13 months. They were interfered with by animals and so on. By the time a pathologist came to examine her, they were, the pathologist wasn't able to determine 
of how precisely she had died. Then the Dwyer's team say, look, the prosecution's case is that that he stabbed her to death, but they're asking the question, well, where is the evidence of this? Pathology evidence doesn't support it. Another thing that they point to under this heading is that uh, Elena Hara was someone who was in receipt of psychiatric care, and there were periods where you know, she expressed suicidal ideation and, and things like that. One psychiatrist basically gave evidence that a period after discharge from psychiatric care was a, quote, risky time, and Elena Hara had just been discharged. So the point being made by Dwyer's team there was that the issue of suicide remained live and large in the case, and there was nothing in the prosecution that took it out. So they're basically saying you can't discount the possibility that she committed suicide. Now, that's been countered by the lawyers for the DPP. They're basically, their argument is that okay, you know, the pathology evidence isn't there or whatever, but because of the accumulation of a whole load of other evidence that it is possible for the jury to infer what the cause of death was. Also, and this is a crucial point that they make, is that if Elaine O'Hara did commit suicide, then how did her mobile phone at her keys end up in a uh, in a reservoir many, many miles away from where her body was found? Another ground is the trial judge's facial expressions. Yeah, there was, uh, so was an allegation that the trial judge, Mr. Justice Tony Hunt, uh, glared at Graham Dwyer and shook his head at, at a critical stage in the evidence. It was put forward by Dwyer's side that this was effectively an adverse commentary on the evidence and that it deprived Dwyer of a fair trial. It was basically said that the jury could pick up on nonverbal cues, that something had, had triggered the judge. You know, this ground obviously is being resisted by counsel for the DPP. And you can see even the, the judges of the court, they didn't seem to buy into it all of that much. I mean, George Birmingham, the president of the court, he remarked that, you know, well, some of the evidence at the trial was by any standards very shocking. So I think that they could understand if a judge's facial expression changed or, or whatever at any point. One of the points that was made by the uh, counsel for the DPP was that, look, you know, even if the judge did glare or whatever, that it didn't really matter because the judge had said repeatedly, time and time and time again, that the jury could only make up their mind on the case based on the evidence before them and not anything else. They had to disregard everything else. Also among disturbing evidence were videos played to the jury of Dwyer having sex with women. Yeah. So this, I suppose, came under a heading of what the Dwyer's legal team would call prejudicial grounds. There were 11 video clips found on a, an external hard drive that Dwyer owned. And these in nine of these clips, he was engaged in sexual activity with, with women. It was three women in total. <clears throat> Some of the clips were involved both him and the victim in this case, Elaine O'Hara. And there were uh, scenes in the videos where a knife was being used by Graham Dwyer and where he either stabbed or pretended to stab the women. And the argument that was made during the trial by Dwyer's team was, look, this is totally prejudicial, prejudicial for the jury to see the videos because of the, the visceral reaction that they might have. And this was basically said in court during the appeal as well, that 
the fear here was it was nothing to do with modesty or or uh, or anything like that. It was that the jury would be overwhelmed and that their ability to remain impartial would be affected. And what they had argued for was that a narrative version would be given to the uh, to the jury. So basically, a description would be read out by a detective. Countering that, counsel for the DPP Anne Marie Lawler said during the appeal that basically what was being proposed here was to deprive the jury of the basic evidence that you and that you can't really do this. That basically what was being suggested was this that, that this real evidence should have been veiled or diluted or conveyed in a narrative by another witness. She said that the judge had discretion to do it and properly exercised that discretion. Another reason she said that the video should have been shown was during his interviews, Dwyer had played down his involvement in BDSM, which was, I suppose, the, the, the loose description of the scene he was involved in. And he had said, for example, that he wasn't into what he called knife play, that he would, he, he said he would never uh, bloodlet, that that didn't do it for him. Anne-Marie Lawler, the DPP counsel, said, well, look, the jury was entitled to see what was in these videos, to see Dwyer's demeanour, and to juxtapose that with what he had said to Gardy in the interviews, that clearly he had lied during the interviews because here he was and he was he was using the knife in a manner that was contrary to, to his own description of how he conducted himself with women. What is the likely outcome, if we can project forward here, of this appeal and the consequences of that? I suppose it's all going to hinge on, on on a few issues. The Council for the DPPs have basically said that, okay, we, we don't accept that the metadata evidence should be excluded, but even if it is excluded, there's ample other evidence there that would have A, identified Graham Dwyer as a suspect, and B, been sufficient to convict him. So the judges are going to have to first of all, wrestle with the metadata issue, I think. And if they decide, well, okay, maybe there should have been this test applied, that's one issue. But they may be able to park that if they come to the view that, well, look, there was all of this other stuff. One thing that Sean Gear and one of the, uh, the DPP councils made a repeated point of during the appeal was that basically the metadata evidence paled in terms of its significance compared to the other evidence that was amassed. And we're talking about 2,600 text messages taken from phones. That's, a lot of these were Elaine O'Hara's. Dwyer himself is only challenging the metadata issue in relation to his own work phone. He isn't challenging it in relation to a second phone, which is described as the master phone. And this was, in the trial, it was alleged that this was a burner phone that Dwyer used to contact Elaine O'Hara. And there was some pretty compelling evidence uh, put forward, you know, based on the content of the texts that were sent from this phone, various things that Dwyer did in his personal life that were able to be matched up by the guards. So he said he was going to a particular meeting. And that night, there was a, an aeronautical club meeting that he went to. He made reference to a, a baby being born. And there was evidence before the court that on the day that that text message, you know, child was born and date of birth and all that was proved to the jury. And there's lots of other examples there, which, you know, really all point at Graham Dwyer. So it, it is quite a strong rebuttal that 
the DPP has put forward. If I was a betting man, I would be betting that Grimdor probably won't be seeing the light of day anytime soon. But look, I'm not I'm not a judge of the Court of Appeal and look, there may be something in there that they see would warrant a retrial or whatever. I think definitely he is fighting a, an uphill battle. My thanks to Shane Phelan. I'm Fiona Sheen, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll and Tabitha Monaghan with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from RTE News and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. 